The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> Today is Wednesday, August 30th, 2006, and I'll be speaking about Bright Mindfulness, which I've been talking about the last several weeks. And in particular, I'll be focusing on the second foundation of mindfulness, which is feeling. And here the word feeling, or Vedana is the Pali word, specifically means the feeling or the experience of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or a feeling tone where we can't tell if it's pleasant or unpleasant. So just as a designator, we'll call that neutral or neutrality. And for the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking about mindfulness of feeling and body together. But tonight I want to focus specifically on feeling just so we can get to know what the Buddha means when he uses that word Vedana and what it means to be mindful and why it's important that we're mindful of Vedana or feeling. And so, uh, for those of you who have been here the last few weeks, I've been talking about the Satipatthana Sutta and the, and the Buddha spelled out four places to be mindful. And so it's really nice to have a roadmap because there's a lot of things we could be mindful of. And if we're particularly interested in the experience of dukkha, suffering, and how to alleviate suffering for ourselves and for others, then the Buddha says to specifically train the mind to be mindful of body. That means the five physical senses, tactile experience, hearing, seeing, smelling, and tasting. That's one foundation. And then, of course, the other three foundations have to do with the mind then. So one is all the things that we would call body experience. And then three aspects of the mind in particular to pay attention to. Paying attention to the experience of feeling, of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. The experience of mind. And here the Buddha is talking about what is present in the mind or what's coloring the mind. Like when greed is coloring the mind, we should know there's greed in the mind. When non-greed or generosity is coloring the mind, we should know, oh, generosity is like this. And then the third, or the fourth foundation, is often translated as mind objects, which isn't very helpful as an instruction. But as teachers talk about this fourth foundation, it's really paying attention to what's in the mind, like the third foundation, but looking at a particular angle. So we're looking at what's in the mind in order to see whether it's wholesome in the sense of is the greed in the mind wholesome or unwholesome, meaning is it leading to happiness or suffering? Well, with greed, generally, we see how it leads to suffering. So that's the fourth foundation, is noticing what's in the mind and what it's leading to. So we're particularly interested in um, the skillfulness or unskillfulness of what's in the mind. Not just what's there, but whether it's skillful or unskillful. Is it leading to happiness or suffering? Okay? 
And in all four of these areas of, that we can practice or train in being mindful, the Buddha says that there are stages. The first stage is just to develop bare attention, just to see, oh, the body is like this. So not our concept, but the actual experience. And that's what I talked about last week. The amount of commitment, wholeheartedness that's required to just do this first stage of mindfulness. And I'm sure most of us noticed that tonight when we are just practicing being mindful of the body sitting or the breath moving in the body, how easy it is to get lost, you know, even though we made the effort to get here to common ground, making the effort to stay sitting, still, even though we're here and we're sitting, the mind does its thing. You know, it just acts out its habits. So we need a commitment that's stronger than our habit energy to be distracted, to think, to worry, to plan, to judge, to compare. We need a commitment that's stronger than our habit energy. That means it's got to be pretty strong. And the commitment is to practice seeing whatever is predominant, or if we're working like with the breath, to see the breath as a physical phenomena, not distracted by our thoughts and images of the breath. Those, there still may be thoughts and images, but we're practicing feeling or seeing the sensations of the breath, not distracted. Like, what is the feeling of touching as the air rubs up against the nostrils? Right? What is that experience free of our interpretation? Oh, I've got a nostril here, and there's this air, and there's probably some molecules, you know, that are bumping up against the cell wall. And so, so all of that often, most often, is in the way of the direct experience of touching of coolness or warmth. Same if you're feeling the belly, the breath in the belly. So that's the first stage, just to move from distraction to what we could call bare attention, or mindfulness is okay, we can just use the word mindfulness. To be mindful means, by definition, when we're mindful of anything, it means we're not distracted by our concepts of whatever it is we're being mindful of that there's a directness or immediacy of the awareness. We can be mindful of a thought as a thought without being distracted by the content of the thought. Right? So it doesn't matter if it's a mental or a physical phenomena. Their attention means there's a seeing or a knowing not distracted by concepts. Does that make sense? That's the first stage of mindfulness practice. Once we have some momentum in our practice and we can get to that place of bare attention more regularly, then the second stage of practice begins to develop, which is with that bare attention we're specifically interested in, we're training the mind to be interested in how things arise and pass away. So you can, this will sound familiar because I was just talking about the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And it's a lot like the second stage that I'm talking about now, where we're specifically interested in how the sensations of the breath are coming and going. That the experience of the breath isn't the, the experience of a thing. The breath is a noun, a thing, a permanent thing. It's not static. The more we're mindful of the breath, the more we see that the breath is simply a stream 
or an unfolding of experience of sensation in this case because it's physical physical experience tactile experience so it's a unfolding of that tactile experience and to unfold that means the sensations are coming and going there's a flux there's nothing there's no ground there there's no breath there to land on no static breath to take a hold of with the attention it's a flow or it's a dance of experience a flux and so we start to see that also in this stage of mindfulness practice we begin to see something really important I meant to notice uh, to instruct us or to give us some instructions around this tonight but I I didn't but one of the things you can notice as you're just paying attention to your breath or to whatever's predominant in your experience as you're paying attention specifically notice the effect of being mindful what is the effect so it's not just that we're being mindful of the breath coming in and the breath going out but we're, we can also know or we can also be mindful of the effect of having that continuity of mindfulness it has an effect doesn't it like for example the whole body and mind might start to relax when there's more continuity of mindfulness so we can notice the continuity of mindfulness like the breath coming in 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 out 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 but then in the next moment we might notice the tranquility that's arising because of the continuity and that's fine you just notice how tranquility is like this calmness is like this maybe there's some happiness arising because the mind is undistracted you're not worrying about the past or worrying about the future so there's a certain freedom in that and that experiences happiness so you just notice the happiness in the same way as you're watching your breath that there's a lot of other um, distractions that are going on in your mind and you're kind of remembering something that happened today that was really unpleasant or hoping about something that's going to happen tomorrow then you can just notice that the lack of continuity or the interruptions to that bare attention how it's supportive of the experience of restlessness or agitation in the mind or anger you know or judgment like I'm a bad meditator so you just notice how notice how we're relating how you know whether the mindfulness is strong or weak and notice what that weakness in our mindfulness what that supports in the sense of like what else is arising because the mindfulness is weak or what else is arising because the mindfulness is strong so is this making sense so you see this is more subtle first we're just trying to have bare attention which means uh, breaking through our concepts or not being distracted by our concepts of like how our mind is interpreting the moment's experience and actually touching seeing knowing the moment's experience and then once we have some momentum being able to know the experience then we're trying to develop interest and in how things come and go and how this coming and going is lawful and how even being mindful is supportive of other things happening and being not mindful distracted is supportive of certain things happening and we just start seeing how things arise together you know and it's said in the discourses of the Buddha and the commentaries 
it said that you know mindfulness when we're mindful it's like it always brings its friends with it you know like patience is a friend of mindfulness and acceptance and kindness and forgiveness and uh, wisdom or clear comprehension these are all good friends of mindfulness so whenever there's some continuity of mindfulness you're going to notice these friends of mindfulness also arising and it's really good to specifically notice them so whenever you have the sort of recognition that oh there's some continuity now like there's some momentum to my mindfulness then just in that moment try to remember to be interested in whether any of those friends are there and then if you notice some of those friends like patience or happiness or joy forgiveness then you might notice if you're attached to those friends right it'd be good to notice if you're attached because that could be the cause being mindful of attachment might be the cause for acceptance of the attachment which may be the cause for the attachment to fall away because it's not being fed by identification in the same way if the mind's really distracted there's not some continuity then notice the agitation notice the suffering the stress the tension notice the self-judgment like I'm a bad meditator or comparing yourself to other people like she's a better meditator than me because she's seems so serene and quiet and I feel like I'm a big storm over here okay so that's the second and then the third phase of mindfulness is when mindfulness uh, sort of comes into sync with wisdom the wisdom of non-clinging so here there's uh, mindfulness without any efforting without any sort of self-centeredness it's not Mark trying to be a good meditator it's just uh, the mindfulness has its own momentum and everything else is let go of there's no clinging so whatever arises or passes it's just being known in the space of awareness and in those moments there's a recognition that the practice takes care of itself ultimately that this is a real possibility and not just in our sit but this is a real possibility for a human being to live to live out of this place we call this enlightenment or freedom or uh, liberation from dukkha liberation from greed anger and delusion or greed hatred and delusion but it doesn't matter what it's called what matters is to recognize these three stages and to move from to develop their attention to keep developing it until there's some momentum and you just notice there's some momentum and you'll naturally start getting interested because what their attention shows us is that everything's coming and going so it is a, it's a little bit false to say we have to then get interested in how things come and go we'll naturally start getting interested when the mindfulness is good it's just amazing how our whole experience is flux is change it just becomes apparent to us how things come and go and the lawfulness of that and we just start seeing everything in terms of skillful and unskillful when this comes it leads to these other friends of its which are not so skillful and they're suffering and when this arises 
then all its friends come and that's skillful and that leads to happiness. And we just start getting it. And the getting of that naturally leads to unwholesome states being undermined. They're being starved, as the Buddha said. And the wholesome states are being fed. And this is just something to notice. Again, you don't have to do anything. Just notice how when you're really mindful of wholesome states, they get stronger. And when there's that clear, non-judging, non-interfering mindfulness of unwholesome states like anger, it gets undermined. The anger gets undermined. It's weakened when we see it clearly. But when there's a lot of generosity or gratitude or patience, and we see that clearly without attachment, the patience, the gratitude, it gets stronger. But just notice that to see if that's actually true in your experience. So those are the three stages of mindfulness. We're going to apply those three stages to every one of these foundations. Bear attention, seeing how things come and go, and how they come and go conditionally. Uh, there's a sub always support. Nothing just happens. When something's arising, it's arising because other things are arising. And when those other things that support it, when they're not there, then it won't arise. Things don't just happen without their supporting causes and conditions. And then the third is the experience of freedom. So the awareness and the wisdom that comes from that awareness and the compassion or intimacy that comes from that awareness, it's all happening effortlessly. There isn't a somebody trying to do a good job here. But in the beginning, it def definitely feels like there's somebody committed to not being distracted by our concepts you know, and to be interested in the, what rises and passes and to you know, look quite carefully. It, it feels like there's somebody doing the practice at this point, but that can disappear then. So now let me take a little time to talk about feeling and then save some time for discussion at the end. So I'll start by reading from a Western Buddhist monk, Nyanapanika uh, Tara. He's great. I think he's German, and uh, he's lived in Sri Lanka for a number of decades, and I'm assuming he's still alive. He's in his 90s, and has done a lot of translation. And this is from his book, a really good book, called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And in this section, he's just... Uh, has translated some of the discourses of the Buddha. So this is from the Buddha. So he's given instructions. And it's always nice to, instead of thinking of the Buddha as some mythical character, to think of him as being a really good teacher in the sense of like he was really good at articulating instructions that, when followed, lead to wholesome consequences. So when we get instructions from the Buddha, instead of revering them, what the Buddha would really like us to do is actually put them into practice and to see for ourselves whether they're useful or not. So keep that in mind when you hear these. So he instructs us, in pleasant feelings, practitioners, the inclination to greed should be given up. In unpleasant feelings, the inclination to aversion should be given up. In neutral feelings, the inclination to ignorance should be given up. If a practitioner has given up in pleasant feelings the inclination to greed or attachment, 
In unpleasant feelings, the inclination to aversion, and in neutral feelings, the inclination to ignorance, or we could say ignoring, then this practitioner is called one who is free of inclinations, one who sees clearly. This person has cut off craving, sundered the fetters, and through the destruction of conceit has made an end of suffering. And then often after a, a discourse like this, the Buddha will, at least in the way that it's been recorded, will give some verses. So here's some verses that follow. If one feels joy but knows not feeling's nature, bent toward greed, he or she will not find deliverance. If one feels pain but knows not feeling's nature, bent towards hate, he or she will not find deliverance. And even neutral feeling, which as peaceful, the Buddha has proclaimed, if an attachment, one should cling to it, will not set him or her free from the round of ill. But if a practitioner is ardent and does not neglect to practice mindfulness and comprehension clear, the nature of all feeling will be penetrated. And having done so in this very life, will one be free from cankers, from all taints, mature in knowledge, firm in the Buddha's way, the Dhamma's way, when one, when once his, her lifespan ends, body breaks, all measure and concepts will be transcended. So in other words, upon death, when the life ends upon death, there will be no, nothing, the heart won't be burdened. You know, if we were Christians, we'd say that the person merges with the divine. But in Buddha, we might say that there's no, uh, there's no aspect of the mind left to create self-centered drama in this life or the next. So what had been burdened is no longer burdened. So the sense, you know, we're all part of the universe, but uh, as human beings, without deep understanding, we're part of the universe, and as part of the universe, we've cultivated this capacity to feel apart. And because we feel apart, we've also developed this capacity to suffer, because we feel apart from the whole. And that's what ends. That's the ending. The extinction. Nibbana means extinction. Extinguishing. But it's not like... Ex what, it, what extinguishes is the burden is the burden that arises from separation. And this burden, according to the Buddhist cosmology, doesn't end with death. It just keeps going on round after round until there's enough understanding so that there's no aspect of the mind creating a sense of separation, an apartness from the whole, and then suffering because of that sense of separation. And feeling has a, an especially potent place in this path of awakening or this path of enlightenment because we get caught up in this so regularly. <clears throat> One of the real gems in terms of the Buddha's teachings, the, model, the different models that he used, one of the really potent 
models, teaching models that he used is called dependent origination. And this is a teaching he gave over and over again. And it was one of the few symbols the Buddha allowed. You know, at the time of the Buddha, the, he was really careful about creating things that people would get attached to, like rituals or, uh, you know, certain uh, costumes or things that people would identify with this particular path. But one of the very few things the Buddha allowed the monks, nuns, lay people to um, sort of use as a symbol was dependent origination, this chain of dependent origination. And there were different formulations, so the Buddha wasn't so concerned about exactly how they sort of uh, described this change, chain, but that they understood what the point of it was. So one of the most uh, used ways of talking about the dependent origination is just talking about how things arise, like I was talking about earlier, things arise conditionally. They just don't happen randomly. And so because there's ignorance, um, because there's ignorance, that means because there's self-centeredness in our mind, karmic formations or mental formations arise. Meaning, when there's the ignorance of separation, when there's this uh, concept, uh, concept that uh, makes, creates, constructs an experience of feeling apart from the whole, right? Everybody know that feeling? I hope, <laughs> unless you're fully free. We all have the feeling of being like there's me and then there's you, or me and the universe. So we all have that feeling to some degree in this moment. Because of that feeling, what arises with that feeling unavoidably is unfinished business, or we could call it what the Buddha calls karmic formation or mental formation. There's stuff alive in us, unfinished stuff. Because I feel apart, I want to protect me, right? So that all that thinking that's about protecting me or getting what I think I need to feel safe or getting rid of what threatens me, that's all alive in me as karmic formation or inclinations or inhibitions or mental formations. And because there's mental formations, there's consciousness, names and forms, six senses, you know, the mind and the five physical senses, and contact, meaning my physical senses, these five, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and my mind are constantly making contact with experience, unavoidably. A thought is contact, a sound is contact, seeing is contact, smelling is contact, tasting is contact, touching is contact. So we're constantly having experience. That whole chain is unavoidable. As soon as there's ignorance, you're going to have all of those things. You're going to have mentality, unfinished business in the mind. You're going to have consciousness. You're going to have a sense of name and form, mentality, physicality. You're going to have sense gates, right? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. And you're going to have contact. You're going to have sense experience. Unavoidably. There's nothing we can do to stop it. And not only are we going to have contact, but we're going to have feeling. So as soon as I see somebody, as soon as I hear something, 
as soon as I touch something, if it's smooth, I might have a pleasant experience. You know, I, I see the wood, I forget what it's called, something like butternut. Uh, Mary, who built this, was telling me it's really beautiful wood here. You can take a look at it sometime. You know, and you touch it and it's smooth. And I have thoughts about, you know, the care that Mary put into making this nice lectern. And so, unavoidably, when I touch, when I see, when I remember, pleasantness comes out. It's just a pleasant, this whole thing, most of this whole thing we call the lectern. For me, evokes pleasant, the pleasant response. And there's nothing I can do about that. Now Mary, let's say she had a frustrating time building it. I don't think she did, but let's just say she did. Every time she comes to Common Ground and sees the lectern she made, she might have an unpleasant experience. She sees it and she's reminded of painful, you know, frustrating work that she did. And that brings up the experience of unpleasantness. So the point I'm making here is there's not anything a human being can do to control any of this up to the point of having a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. All of that has already been set in motion just because there's ignorance, meaning there's a sense of separation. Any being that has this basic ignorance of separation, self-centeredness, will have all of these other things, including the experience of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. So this is a, such an important point. This is why the Buddha separates it out and says, this, my friends, is a foundation of mindfulness. If you want to be free, you have to invest, you have to commit to being mindful of feeling. Because if we're not mindful of feeling, that chain just continues. Unpleasantness as a, as a experience will naturally, unavoidably lead to what? What is, when we're not mindful, what does unpleasantness naturally, unavoidably lead to? Aversion. And pleasantness naturally, unavoidably leads to? Yeah, attachment. And there's nothing that can prevent that except mindfulness. Because what mindfulness does, bringing awareness into the experience of, of uh, feeling, the feeling tone, or the affective tone in, in a moment, is it creates this choice, which is, uh, with mindfulness, there's the possibility of being equanimous. Oh, it's just unpleasantness, or it's just pleasantness, or it's just neutrality. We don't have to react to neutrality by ignoring it, thinking, well, because it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, who cares? We can be quite attentive, mindful, intimate with neutrality. We can be quite mindful, attentive, equanimous to pleasantness and to unpleasantness too. And this is the possibility that mindfulness brings. Without mindfulness, we're a robot. We react to pleasantness with attachment. We react to unpleasantness with aversion. And we react to neutrality with, by ignoring it, which is delusion or ignorance. And that's just how it is. And it's really great to see it. Like, you know, somebody says something, we have a conversation on the phone, and somebody says something that for whatever reason pushes our buttons. Well, up until that point, there's no way we could, it could be different than that. 
But at that point, when we wake up and we notice that we're hurting, that it's unpleasant, then there's a that's a that's a perfect place to practice. Because if we don't practice there, then the pain, the unpleasantness we feel because of that comment will lead to some kind of reaction. And generally our reactions are not very skillful in the sense that they just lead to more tension for us, more suffering for others. It just keeps the wheel of delusion going. So in terms of the dependent origination, this chain that the Buddha allowed the monks and nuns and lay people to they would actually draw it or write it out in, in, in symbols and in words on the monasteries, on the different places where they would gather. And uh, so it would go from feeling, when you're not being mindful then, then it would go immediately to craving. And craving leads to clinging. Clinging leads to becoming. Becoming leads to birth and death and suffering and on to ignorance. And it just keeps going around and around and around. And it's not even so much birth and death in terms of a whole lifetime, although that's one way to interpret this, but also birth and death in each moment. You know, when we react to pleasantness with attachment, then we think, I'll be happy if I get it. And that generates a kind of clinging, like we're trying to get it. And that leads to the sense of a mark who's going to be happy. So that's that becoming part, like I have a sense of me happy when I get this, or me unhappy if I don't get this. And that's sort of investing into a birthing. You know, we're taking birth, a mark who can have this. That's like taking birth in our mind as unfinished business, that hoping, that desire, that craving. It's alive in us now. We have created some mental momentum, which we call karma. In Buddhism, we call that karma. That unfinished business is karma. Because of the consequence of that intentional clinging, craving, wanting, we've set in motion a force in the heart, a force in the mind, which we call becoming, which leads to birth and death and suffering. On and on, moment by moment, lifetime by lifetime. So that sort of endless cycling, in Buddhism we call samsara. Somebody told me once that Somebody named a perfume samsara. Had you heard that? <laughs> Clearly, they don't understand what samsara means, because samsara means cycles of suffering. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it sounds exotic, I guess. Um, who knows what the reasoning was? But uh, from a Buddhist point of view, we're not interested in samsara. It's the way it is, because there's nothing that has there's. We haven't developed anything to break the chain. So this is what the Buddha wanted us to remember. And it's why he allowed the monks and nuns to sort of hold that image or create that image in a way that they could easily be reminded that unless they cultivate mindfulness, they're going to miss this opportunity that when there's sense contact, there will be feeling unavoidably that there's a possibility of being mindful of the feeling so that they don't have to react to it blindly. So that's our homework this week. First of all, we'll need to just develop the sensitivity required to see the feeling tone in any given moment of experience. I mean, sometimes it's really obvious. But often when it's obvious, 
like when there's something very pleasant going on or something very unpleasant, what what happens with that? There's the the pleasantness triggers all that unfinished business. Like if we wanted money our whole life, and who knows, maybe lifetimes we've wanted a lot of money, and all of a sudden we get some money. Well, the arrival of that money or the thought that we're going to get that money, it triggers all of that unfinished business, all that karmic formation comes to the surface of the mind, and we just think, oh, this is what I've always wanted. Now I can do, and we'll be literally overwhelmed by the force of that unfinished business as it comes to the surface of the mind. So this is why we have to cultivate a sensitivity so that we're doing the work in a more subtle way. We can't wait to when pleasantness or unpleasantness is really obvious because it's usually too overwhelming. There's just too much stuff going on in our mind that we won't really be able to be too mindful. But we can be mindful if we sit every day and we develop sensitivity. We can be mindful as you know, toward the end of our 45-minute sit and we start noticing the pain in the back or the pain in the knee and we notice how it's unpleasant. That's a perfect place to do this practice. Before it becomes excruciatingly unpleasant, but it's just kind of unpleasant, that's the place to do this practice. So there's kind of unpleasant sensations in the knee, right? So we notice that with bare attention, right? We're with the breath, and then at some point, the mindfulness, the attention to the breath gets interrupted by the pain in the knee. And at some point, you know, there's a, there's a threshold where the uh, intensity of the pain in the knee is so strong that if we try to go back to the breath, we'll create tension in the mind. And that will be a single signal to us. Don't go back to the breath. Instead, pay attention to what's strongly predominant, which is the pain in the knee. So we just naturally, instead of having a breath meditation, quite naturally, without any judgment, we'll just have a knee meditation, mindfulness of pain. And as we're feeling the intensity, the throbbing, the aching, the stabbing, the burning, or whatever that pain, whatever the particular experience of the pain is, as we start opening to that without judgment, without reactivity, well, we just start getting what is the intensity, the specific sensations, and what is the unpleasantness as an experience itself. So there's the physicality, and then there's an aspect that arises unavoidably with this physical experience of intensity, of, let's say, throbbing, which is unpleasantness. And so we can see Oh, unpleasantness. So we're moving from looking at the physicality of the pain to the mind's uh, response or the mind's um, what arises in the mind with that physical sensation of throbbing. And we see, oh, unpleasantness. Unpleasantness in the mind is like this. And then we practice being mindful, which means being equanimous. Open, non-judging, non-reacting, intimate, allowing it to be what it is. Open means we allow it to do its thing. And we see that, like everything, the unpleasantness is also impermanent. It's not a fixed thing. If we're not mindful, as soon as there's a moment of unpleasantness, 
what arises with it is a sense of a mark who doesn't like it, who feels threatened by it, who feels if I don't do something, I'm going to be suffering from this unpleasantness forever. So I'm going to move my knee, move my leg. But when we're mindful, we see that there's a whole dance here of mentality and physicality. And it's not so formidable when we see it as change, as, as flux. But when we have a fixed notion, fixed concept of knee being destroyed, my life being ruined, never to walk again, that's completely unworkable. We'll freak out, we'll move, or we'll say, I'm never going to meditate again, or we'll just react to it. But when we see that it's much more alive and ephemeral than that, then actually we can be with pain for quite a while without reacting to it. And we might notice that it actually goes away until something else happens. You know, maybe pain somewhere else. Or maybe at some point we see that there's pain and there's also a recognition that this is unskillful, being with this pain. There should be movement. There should be release, you know. And then we'll just naturally, out of wisdom and compassion, we'll move the leg. So it doesn't mean we sit until, you know, who knows when. It doesn't prevent us from moving. But there's a lot of pain that's not going to cause permanent physical damage. And that kind of pain we can work with, especially before it becomes really intense. And this isn't just true with physical pain, but also with mental pain, emotional pain, pain of memories. And, of course, the same is true with pleasant experience. So I want to leave it here because um, being human beings, all of us have had countless experiences of pleasantness and unpleasantness. Countless times we've reacted blindly to those experiences. But probably all of us have had moments of being relatively mindful when it's pleasant or unpleasant and maybe have responded in different ways. So if you have any questions about the talk tonight or any experiences from your own life, your own sitting practice, that you'd like to share with the group or whatever comes to mind. Cindy. Um, I'm a little confused about the, what you bring to the mindfulness. I have an example of a very pleasant experience on Sunday, but I don't think there was any attachment or clinging, but I was mindfully trying to not do anything. Um, I was walking in the woods and this very young couple, a young mother had a baby on a... Can you hear Cindy in the back? Okay. On a, um, one of those baby slings, and and I stopped, and I said, no, baby, and then um, it was, face was hidden, but um, it, I looked in the face, and its eyes were smiling at me, and it was just so pleasant, and then I asked if I could pet the baby on the head, <laughs> and this little soft, just downy hair, and I petted the baby, and it was just so sweet, and then... Um, I thanked her and she, she said, thank you for petting my baby. <laughs> and then I went and, you know, I didn't want a baby. My baby's 21 years old. You know, I don't, there wasn't any clinging. Um, I didn't even ever think of that again until you were petting the wood. Mm-hmm. And talking about the pleasantness of the petting the wood. And then I remembered how very pleasant it was petting the baby in the head. But then it was gone. But I wasn't trying to do anything. So it wasn't bringing, you know, intentionally mindful, you know, let it go, or just like I was doing anything. Yeah. Well, remember the three stages of mindfulness practice, right? 
So sometimes we're in that third stage where just because uh, there's pleasantness arising doesn't mean we have to do anything about it, right? So sometimes when pleasantness is arising, nothing is arising, attachment isn't arising in conjunction with it. And that generally happens the more we're fully there in the experience. Because if we're fully there in the pleasantness or in the scene or in the softness, so we're just there in an immediate way, fully there, then there's really no space in the mind to start thinking, you know, even though I'm this age, maybe I could have another baby, you know, or whatever, you know, maybe I'll get a cute puppy or whatever you, your mind might do, or it isn't fair, you know, it isn't fair that these people have a baby. All of which, of course, would, wouldn't be unpleasant. You know, you, you really see how not being there with the pleasantness, any removal from that pleasantness, being fully there with the pleasantness, is suffering. It's like how many times have we had a bowl of ice cream that we like, and not, ha and not been there for it. I mean, it's the mo one of the most absurd things that inspires us to practice is when we see how even when our life in that moment is pleasant, we're not there. I mean, I always am astounded when I end up in beautiful places and I'm totally not there. You know, I'm taking a walk in a beautiful place and I'm just not there or I'm with the friends I really wanted to be with, and I'm just not there. I'm thinking, I'm worrying, I'm doing something, but I'm not really just in the pleasantness of being in the woods or in the pleasantness of being around people I love. So when there are those moments, then we understand how easy... See, practice, we have to understand this third stage, because if we don't even have... A, a, if It's nice to have a real sense of this, but even an intellectual sense of effortlessness and freedom. We might think that the path is about becoming hypervigilant, you know, and uh, sort of obsessive and, uh, you know, careful. But the path leads toward an intuitive wisdom. It isn't Mark or Cindy being wise and mindful. It's a naturalness. So what we're doing is w the intensity of commitment that I talk about is uh, is uh, not picking up what isn't natural. And because it's our habit to pick up those reactive tendencies, those habits, we need, a in the beginning, we need a real commitment not to do that, to have that bare attention. But in moments, there'll be a lot of momentum, and then the practice is letting go. That's all it is. Like letting go or letting the experience be. That's all the practice is. And anything more actually gets in the way. Like if the thought arose about, okay, Cindy, don't blow it. This is really pleasant. Don't blow it. Don't get attached. That itself would be in the way. Thanks. Sounded, sounded really pleasant. <laughs> and now it's gone. Other uh, stories from your lives or questions that you might have? I thought about the pain of memory that you mentioned. Um, it's hard to be there in that thought without trying to fix it, you know. So I'm wondering what Did you hear her question? So if a painful memory comes, 
it's hard to just be with that painful memory without getting involved in the context, content rather, and then therefore wanting to solve the problem that it that it implies. And the, the trick is to understand the difference between the content of the memory or the thought and the actual feeling that's arising with the content. So there is the story in the mind, you know, the content, the images. But as that story arises in the mind, there's also, a, in a sense, a visceral, energetic experience. Maybe tension, hardness, burning, whatever it is, nausea. So you can pay attention to that. And that that's not so seductive as the images and the thoughts. And you're still being intimate. So instead of trying to be equanimous to the story, to the thoughts, and you can practice being mindful and accepting, allowing of how it feels, that memory in the body, energetically. So maybe there's a feeling of hollowness or a feeling of restlessness, like you've got to do something. So can you be mindful and equanimous, like just letting that feeling be what it is? So that that's that choice, like the choice to just be present to the body, the experience, especially the subtle experience of the body. And that will give you a, uh, something to do other than uh, spinning or rethinking the thoughts or re-seeing the images that go with that that particular memory. So a little bit more time. Other people have thoughts they'd like to share or questions? Mm-hmm. In the back? Maybe a little bit louder. Equanimous, you said? Well, different different experiences will arise, whatever you know, whatever you're using. So, uh, to just go back to that earlier experience where you were saying you were noticing how things were just passing. So, like when that seems to be predominant, then what you can be mindful of, what you can be open to, and allowing of, is change. So, try to develop uh, naturally. Uh, be interested in the experience of change or flux or flow, how things are. So we're not actually, you're not trying to tune into what's coming and going so much because it sounds like from how you described it that what was predominant actually in that experience is the change, is the fact that things were coming and going 
more than what exactly was coming and going. So that's something that can be observed and open to, just as much as the in-breath in can be observed and open to and allowed to be the way it is. And if the brightness that you experience uh, is there, just let it be there. And sometimes it might, it might become predominant and then just let it become predominant, let it become the object of attention. But be aware, because often things like that are pleasant in a subtle way or not so subtle way. And just be aware if there's an attachment or an agenda, like I'm liking. And then look at the liking or the attachment or wanting things to develop in a particular way. Wanting that feeling of lightness or that feeling of, of being unburdened by a sense of self or unburdened by worries or, you know, whatever you might be free of. So, so this is especially true when the mind is subtle that we want the, what we're noticing, like the quality of interest, we're noticing subtle things. Don't feel like you, you have to stay being mindful of more gross things. Let the objects of attention be as subtle as the mind is. So when the mind is really subtle, then we're noticing very subtle things. But we can, just because they're subtle, doesn't mean we can't be very clear. Oh, this is how it is now. It's like this. Not that you even have to say that in your mind, of course, but just the noticing of it. And also, like I was saying with Cindy, in those moments, you can practice letting go of doing the practice. Like, just see if the mindfulness, the awareness, has enough momentum that if you let go of any sense of having to do something, if, if it can continue on its own, in which case, let go. If, if you find in doing that you slide into some dull state or the mind gets caught in attachment or aversion, then bring your sense of, I'm a meditator trying to do the practice, what's happening? Okay, see this, you know, and see it as something happening in the moment. So you kind of, you, you sort of reboot the uh, um, mindfulness meditation disc, you know, and then you start becoming a mindful meditator at that point. But when you, it's also good to just notice how mindfulness, wisdom, clear comprehension, it has its own momentum. It will unfold naturally when there's enough momentum. And it's important there to practice letting go of doing anything at that point. Just letting things unfold. And it may last for a few seconds or it may last for a couple minutes. And then conditions change and we have to sort of be willing to practice in a more gross way. I don't mean gross in a bad sense, but in a, in a, in a less subtle way. And not to be attached to when practice is subtle and not to be averse to when practice is not so subtle. But just to use the right medicine at the right time. You know, whatever skillful, whatever is skillful, then that's what's skillful. Whatever supports freedom is skillful. Whatever supports uh, heaviness and burdensomeness and suffering is unskillful. And that's that's our only barometer, really. There may be time for one more. Oops, no, actually, we're it's just nine o'clock, so we should probably end here. So let's take a few seconds and let go of the words. Don't feel like you have to remember everything. 
some of what was said tonight will naturally resonate and will come up in your daily life practice and in your formal sitting practice. You can always take some notes when you get home if you want. Just notice if there's any sense of gratitude or happiness being connected with these wholesome teachings that men and women have been working with for so long. And we can let arise this beautiful aspiration to do the best we can to practice in our daily life and to practice formally every day if we can, meditating, not just for our own well-being, but as a way of taking care of all beings without exception. So we live and we practice to support the awakening, the happiness, the peace and skillfulness of all beings. This is our aspiration. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.